guys, it's Melissa. Since we're an independent podcast, your support means the absolute world, whether that's on social media, in a podcast review, or a word of mouth recommendation. If you've been enjoying this podcast and would like to take it a step further, I now have a support feature where you can contribute a one-time donation at whichever price you'd like. Click the link in the episode description to learn more. Thanks guys, now enjoy the show. The Sisterhood of the Bottomless Mimosa. What's up, you guys? This is Melissa, and welcome back to the Mimosa Sisterhood podcast. I've got some very exciting news about today's episode. I did a collaboration with Paige and Natalie from the Murder Diaries podcast, and the three of us are going to tell you the life story of an incredible woman in history whose life was cut way too short, and we are going to crack the case of the mystery surrounding her unsolved murder. I am super excited about this, you guys, because The Murder Diaries is without a doubt my favorite true crime podcast, and they invited me on their show to record this episode with them that I am now publishing on my show. So, backstory... I met Natalie and Paige through this incredible podcast community, and they are also Southern California locals, and I actually met Natalie very briefly in a parking lot in Tustin with my face covered in a mask where she met me to give me a bottle of rosé as a gift for being on their podcast. Uh, Can we just say how fucking cute is that, and can we be best friends for life? Like the sweetest thing ever. So the Mimosa Sisterhood and the Murder Diaries are actually quite similar and we're kind of doing the same thing but in different ways. So I tell stories about women from history, many of which are largely unknown or often forgotten. And the Murder Diaries tells true crime stories of female victims and their number one mission is to give voices back to these women who have passed away often tragically. So we're kind of like three peas in a pod. Also, Natalie and Paige have the coolest story ever. They met on Bumble BFF, which is literally the Tinder for platonic relationships. So if you don't know what this is, you make a profile, you upload your pictures, you do a little bio about yourself, and you swipe away until you see other gal pals that you want to be friends with, and you wait until you get a match. So Natalie and Paige matched, and it turns out they both shared a love for true crime, and voila, the Murder Diaries podcast was invented. So how freaking cool is that story? But the funniest thing to me about this is that for being true crime lovers that they are, Natalie and Paige literally broke rule number one of stay sexy, don't get murdered, which is don't meet people on the internet. (laughs) So clearly, somehow this worked out in their favor, and now they have an incredible podcast that celebrates the memories of women whose lives were lost unjustly. But don't do that, guys. Don't, Don't meet people on the internet and die. So I really hope you enjoyed this super fun collab and this insane story that we're about to tell you. It takes place in 1930s old Hollywood era. It is a literal mystery. And you know, 80 years later, 
it's still considered unsolved. So Paige, Natalie, and I, we get nitty gritty on the story of this woman and we go through a list of many different theories of ways in which she could have been killed. So I really hope you enjoy this and you know, let me know what you think. If you ha- if you enjoyed this episode, if you love this collaboration and you want to see and hear more of these, let me know. I had an absolute blast recording with these ladies and I would totally love to do it again. So let me know your thoughts and enjoy the motherfucking show. This week, we're going to be talking about Thelma Todd, which is a very interesting case. I don't know if our listeners have heard of her before, but I'm so amped for Melissa to tell us this story. Yeah, yeah. I left some stuff to the mystery, but I did snoop slightly. Okay, well, I picked (laughs) Thelma Todd for a number of reasons, but most importantly, because her nickname was Hot Toddy, and that is one of my favorite cocktails. Yes. (laughs) Okay, spirit animal. <laughs> spirit animal right Your girl now. drinks hot toddies like five times a week. And um, <laughs> nice. I, the minute that I saw that one of her, her celebrity actress names was Hot Toddy, I was like, I love this woman. So for anybody that doesn't know, Thelma Todd was an American actress. And she appeared in like 120 films during the 1920s and 1930s many of which were silent films, short films, and comedy films. Um, And she died in 1935 at the age of 29 from a very suspicious death. Um, As of today, like 80-something years later, it's still considered an unsolved mystery in terms of how she died. I mean, we, we know she died, but it just isn't really adding up as to how that happened. And so I'm going to tell you a little bit about her life and everything that led up to that moment. And then there's quite a few theories in terms of what happened. And based off her life story, um, we get to kind of chat about those. And all three of us can sort of give our opinion on what we think might have actually happened. Oh, you know we'll have something to say about each thing. <laughs> oh, yeah. Absolutely. And I need to hear all of them. I will probably, when we're done, dive into, like, a deep, dark hole of all those theories on my oh, own, yeah. too. <laughs> Hello, Reddit. <laughs> yeah. So she was born in 1906 in Massachusetts. And in her late teens, she began entering into beauty pageants. And she even won the title of Miss Massachusetts in 1925, which is really what resulted her to be scouted by Hollywood, from um, Hollywood scouts that used to attend those type of pageants back in the day. And this is what kickstarted her career in the film industry at Paramount. So she was in her late teens when she was pulled out of regular day life and brought into Hollywood, which most of us know Hollywood isn't always that glamorous. It is dark, especially in the 1920s when this industry was really booming. It was like brand new. This was right when, you know, all of these movie stars were kind of coming into play. It was just like this raging entertainment industry and things were very fresh, brand new. People were very, very interested in getting into it. It was this glamorous idea of being a Hollywood star. 
Um, but it was a really, really young industry. And so with young industries, things aren't totally like there's no processes set in stone. There's no systems. There's no people that are like monitoring the industry. So things weren't that great. Right. It's kind of raw. Yeah, it's, it's the kind wild, of like, wild west. essentially. <laughs> yes. <laughs> For real, there's no precedence. There's no nothing. I just want to throw out that even though Thelma was discovered at a really young age, like a teenager. I consider that to be pretty young. Oh, yeah. Um, she looked very mature for her mm-hmm. age. She looked older. And I mm-hmm. think that kind of is similar to Elizabeth Taylor, how she was discovered at 16, but my, or, you know, um, really shot off into the uh, stratosphere at the age of 16. And same thing with Thelma. She looks much more mature and full-bodied like for someone that is the was the age she was you know what I'm saying like and so I think going into this world this wild wild west without rules without um really anyone knowing what to expect at such a young age but looking older probably did you know lend itself to how her interactions went with other people in the industry I don't know I think that would be that's something important to think about Absolutely. And then like another, another interesting thing I was thinking about is like during the 1920s, this was when people like cared about the way that they dressed, you know, like women were expected to be like in full makeup, hair dolled up, you know, skinny with like bustiers and like get dresses and skirts and they always have their little tap shoes or whatever. And so Mm -hmm. I think just in general, like everybody looked great. There was an expectation on the way you presented yourself. And I think that made teenage girls even more desirable. You know, they weren't like us with braces and like giant top buns in like flower printed leggings and like some dorky sweater. You just (laughs) described what I'm wearing. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I rock this every day at 31. I'm not hearing it. No, but I really get what you mean. Like there was... A definite, um, it just lent itself to people looking more mature and um, mm-hmm. maybe more uh, appearing more mature than they were mentally or emotionally. Yeah, totally. So she was an instant hit and she started out in silent films, but then that quickly led to her appearing in short comedy films. And she was appearing alongside of some of like the greatest comedy people in the industry at that time. And as I mentioned, Hollywood was brand new. Everybody thought it was glamorous, but it was really dark. And it still is dark, but it started Mm -hmm. dark. And what I mean by that is that one of the very first contracts that she signed for her being an actress in the movie industry had a specific clause written in the contract that specified what her weight was at the time of signing that contract. It was 125 pounds. And it specifically stated that if she gained more than three or lost more than six, the contract could be terminated. You can you can fluctuate seven in a day. I wish I wish I were surprised. Yeah, I mean it. It just reminds me of Judy Garland. You know, Dorothy from Wizard of Oz. She was so afraid of gaining weight that her diet consisted of like multiple packs of cigarettes a day in order to maintain her weight. And so it's not a surprise. It doesn't make it any less horrific, but um, Mm -mm. 
it was just the standard for the day. And that's such a tragedy for these poor young women that didn't know, you know, they were trying to make a name for themselves and this was how they had to do it. Absolutely. And in addition to that, she, of course, sadly became addicted to diet pills. So Mm -hmm. she was immediately, you know, she was pretty much said like, hey, you have great potential. You're beautiful. You're an incredible actress. You're already booming in this comedy world. But you got to keep your eye on your weight because if you don't, you could get fired. So she was pretty much forced into having like severe body dysmorphia. She developed a addiction to diet pills in order to stay within the standards that she believed meant she could be successful in her career. So not good. Um, And even worse, she also had to experience what still happens today in 2020 is what they called casting couch situations, which basically meant that you were expected to provide sexual favors to your employer in order to advance in your career. So she experienced many situations like this, as well as being asked to entertain producers when she was at Hollywood parties. However, she, I I mean, I can't confirm if she did or didn't, but she was actively vocal against it. She made a stand that this was happening. She brought it up in her social circles. She was very vocal about it and calling out people that put her in these messy situations. So I mean, I don't know if that means that she never had to endure one of these scenarios, you know, Mm -hmm. from beginning to end, but she definitely didn't let it go under the rug. So I also imagine that that was not common at that time period for women to be so vocal and stand Mm -hmm. up for themselves. And also for young women who, you know, obviously are in this booming new entertainment industry, many of which felt probably pressured to go forward with these types of acts out of fear that they would lose their careers. And Thelma knew that she could lose her career and she still spoke up about it. Good for her. So it could almost be seen as like the precursor to the Me Too movement of oh, the yeah. past several years. Totally. Except she didn't have a platform to be able to do it. She was probably kind of on her own with it. And oh, meanwhile yeah, being sure. fed freaking diet pills. Like, here you go. Yeah. Here you go. But, like she didn't start those on her own. Somebody no. was probably like, hey, Check these out. Oh, 100%. But I I think that makes it all the more admirable that she was able to stand Mm -hmm. up for something, you know, for herself. Yeah. It makes me sad she didn't have a platform like that to be with her during it. But yeah, go Thelma. Yeah. Um, And then, of course, she ended up marrying a Hollywood agent. His name was Pat DeCiccio. And they had a horrendous marriage. And she ended up filing for divorce, which she stated, quote, was for grievous mental and physical suffering. So he was probably an abusive asshole. And probably yeah, was like it. playing along with the diet pills and probably even having her be put in these casting couch situations, you know? Who knows? So yeah. Yeah, you, know, you could have been like pimping her out to these situations because that's... But boys will be boys, right? Oh God, <laughs> I know. And so, so this is how her career started in Hollywood. Yay! Beautiful. Beautiful. Um, Yay, Hollywood. <laughs> who, who wouldn't want to just drive out and move to Hollywood right now? I know. I know. And the, sadly, sounds- sadly, many women were looking at these actresses and praying to God that they could be just like them, probably yep. having no clue that any of this kind of stuff was happening to these women behind closed doors. 
Totally. Well, it's kind of like today in social media. You know, you see, you're presented one thing, but everything that goes into making that perfect image is not what it seems. No, so not at all. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I saw something today from a fashion historian who was talking about corsets and stays. And stays and corsets are similar, but they have their differences. I'm not going to get into it. I'll let her. Her name is Abby Cox on YouTube. And I'll let her be the expert on it. But she was just basically saying, like, in those days, they used corsets and they used stays in the, um, let's say, 17th, 18th century, all the way through, like, very early 20th, that they would use those to create the body shape. And now... And probably in Thelma's time, this is where it was really getting to that point where a lot of that was beginning, that we have to make our body that way. Instead of being able to use corsets and stays to match what fashion is telling us we should have, right? Long torso, short torso, straight torso, curvy torso. They used boning and and corsets and things like that to achieve the right body shape and got to live happily in their own body shape. And Nowadays, we're told you need to make your body look like that through diet and exercise, which is right. modify it or cool yeah, sculpting. you need to modify it. <laughs> yeah, or cool sculpting. If I see that ad one more time, I'm going to barf. <laughs> but yeah, like that's that is what we're told to do. And I feel like in the beginning of all of this happening, Thelma was part of this movement where, you know, we didn't have corsets or stays anymore and we had bras and different types of underwear. And I know it sounds a little corny and this is what we wear today. So we accept it and we like it, but we do as women kill ourselves. And she didn't have a comparison of understanding this was going on because this is in the beginning when we got rid of the stays and the corsets. Mm -hmm. Oh my God. I didn't even think, wow, that's, now that I'm saying it out loud, it's it's like all flooding to my brain and I'm like, oh my God. Yeah. Just like the evolution of women's not only bodies but ideas about their bodies has been very tragic <laughs> throughout <Yes>. time. <laughs> the way it's well, evolved. and a lot of times, right? It's, it's not to our favor. Well, it's the view of women's body through um, the male gaze. Oh, yeah, essentially. Always. Yeah, yeah. So, Sorry, I didn't mean to take you off on a huge tangent. No, you're I really fine. do want to hear about Thelma, but that's it, a good it is tangent. so interesting to, you know, I mean, dive it's into all this relevant, era. It's all relevant information, and I'm. It's it, you have to consider the generation and the time period when you think about what these women were going through, or why things played out the way that they did, or even how they responded to them. Like it's all relevant. Um, and so it's important and we, we do have to talk about those things, but I mean, even though she was going through all this shit, she was extremely popular and she had a ton of friends and she was dating like every dude on earth. So she was <laughs> like out her. there living it up. And I think she kind of just went with the punches, but she was also a very likable person. So like, for instance, even though she was calling out all these crappy dudes who were putting her in these casting couch situations, she was at a party with like martini in hand, dancing the night away, being like, fuck that dude and his stupid casting couch. He tried to get me to do this. And she was like the loud mouth at the party, but she never really got like in trouble for it because she was so popular. She was like, loved across like the entire Hollywood world. They just loved her. She was such like a queen. They thought she was just this amazing woman. So I'm sure there were a lot of men that were kind of like over it, 
But she was a really popular celebrity. She was an incredible actress and it just, she got away with it. So. And that's really important to keep in mind because like you said at the beginning, her death is suspicious and it hasn't Mm -hmm. been solved. So maybe the women didn't mind her saying all of this, but maybe there was a guy that was tired of it. So yeah, hundred percent. that is really important to keep in mind. Yeah, yeah, totally. Exactly. And so the other cool thing about her is again, keep in mind, this is the start of Hollywood. She was cast into roles that were not typical for the beautiful women at that time period. So normally women would be cast into these like dumb blonde stereotype mm-hmm. roles. And she often portrayed like a very independent woman. And so I don't know if it was because she just carried herself that way naturally and was able to kind of land those roles. But I think that's also why she was really popular, especially among women at that time period, because she kind of like stood against that shitty stereotype. Like she wasn't, she was drop dead beautiful, but she didn't play a dumbass that was drop dead beautiful. (laughs) So she, that was just another really important thing about her acting career that I think is just also worth noting and just who she was as a person and how people perceived her and the types of roles she was able to land. And she actually was quoted one time to say that building on beauty seems to me the worst thing that any girl can do. So that's really interesting that um, she was able in the 1920s to recognize Mm -hmm. that you can't just get by on beauty and nothing else. And I think that's kind of why she made a stance and made sure that the roles that she accepted were reflective of like her perspectives on being a woman and being beautiful in the industry. And so this is where things kind of start going crazy. Um, <laughs> in 1931, she co-starred in a film called Corsair, which was directed by a man named Roland West, who she became romantically involved with. Roland was married. Um, so she was having an affair with him. And this wasn't really that surprising. Um, pretty much everyone was having an affairs in the 1920s oh, yeah. in Hollywood. And as I mentioned before, she dated whoever she wanted, whenever she wanted. And that was just the way it was. Um, and she was desirable. Everybody wanted to date her. So it just, things were how they were, but he was still married while this was going on. And his wife was very well aware of it. It wasn't a secret. Um, Uh I imagine that her husband probably had done this millions of times in their marriage, being that he was a movie director in the 1920s at the launch of Hollywood. And I'm sure he was getting around to all the actresses at that time period. So yeah, she kind of was just whatever about it. She didn't really care. So a couple years later, Thelma opened a cafe. So she was not only an actress, but a businesswoman. And it was called the- so cool. Right? I just- I want to poke in how hard it yeah. was for women in this time period to own something like that. You couldn't even get a credit card without right? a husband signing. So it makes me wonder, was this because she was such a big name in Hollywood? Did she have to pay full cash for this and girl was rolling in money? Like, this is interesting to me that she could own something on her own like that or how she well, would have obtained something like that. Oh, fill me in. She was part owner. Okay. Um, yep. That Roland West, me. her boyfriend who was married, also yep. went in on it along with his wife. <laughs> oh, oh okay. my God. Three's so a three's crowd. apparently company in <laughs> this little concoction. <laughs> oh, um, wow. Yeah. So the, the cafe was called the 
Thelma Todd Sidewalk Cafe. So it was in her name. She was the face of the cafe, the face of the business. But as you mentioned, I believe that she had to have Roland on this lease or business transaction in order to either afford it or to be approved for it. I'm not totally sure. Um, and because he was married, his wife was had a part in it as well. And so this cafe was in the Pacific Palisades area of Los Angeles, and it attracted a major diverse clientele of Hollywood actresses and actors. And it was also a huge tourist attraction. So it was just like booming in the 30s. Um, and then this is like the weirdest part. Thelma, so above the cafe, it was like two stories. Cafe was on the bottom. At the top level was like a massive apartment but it was split into two units and Thelma lived in one of them and Ronald oh, Roland and his wife had the other half. Wow. So he was just probably. You can't make this shit up. I'm <laughs> no. They're well, essentially sister wives. It sounds like, of. you know, living in a duplex above their cafe. Well, so it is sister wifey. Well, this is what I think it was like. So even stranger, Ron- Roland and his wife had a home like two blocks away, like their married life house. And I think Thelma got this cafe. There was apartment units above it. She wanted to live in one of them so she could be above her cafe and just be like operating her business because she was really the one that was running it. And I think Roland purchased the second unit as his little like getaway when he was going to be with Thelma so that like Thelma didn't have to go party, you know, rocking in his house with his wife. This was kind of their little rendezvous unit together. And I think it even had connecting doors. Um, but technically oh it was God. divided. Like you you had there were two front doors, one to each unit, but I think you could kind of like go through them. Um so yeah, very weird. I don't know. Yeah. Is this normal? I'm in getting the 20s, ve- 30s? I don't I'm know. I'm getting <laughs> very big love vibes. Did you guys ever watch that HBO show? Oh yeah. Loved it. Wives? That loved totally it. feels like it. Where all the backyards were connected. Mm-hmm. Oh my god, separate. that was so weird. <laughs> so weird. <laughs> yes, but you're right. You're totally right. So yeah, so strange. Uh, and then on Saturday, December 14th, 1935, Thelma attended a party that was thrown for her from some friends who owned like a restaurant nightclub thing. And she partied all night long, was having the time of her life. And attendees at this party have stated that she was there having so much fun. She was the life of the party, drinking, dancing the night away. Um, but apparently her boyfriend, Roland, had asked her to be home by like two in the morning. I guess he didn't attend the party. I don't know why. But Thelma was like, yeah, okay. <laughs> Stayed out all night long. Like, was just like, screw you, I'm not coming home. Uh, as one would. <laughs> so, um, so she's out partying all night. And... I guess like around 3 a.m., she calls her chauffeur and he drives her home to her cafe apartment. (laughs) And it's very, this is where all the suspicious details sort of come into play because the chauffeur stated that he dropped her off at her apartment sometime between three and four in the morning and left. Like she was at her home. He said goodbye. And that was the end of it. But then two days later, Thelma's maid began her morning routine, which, so this would have been Monday because Saturday is the night of the party. So two days later, so Monday morning, the maid's ready to start her Monday morning shift. She starts to do her routine. And part of her routine was going to Roland's house, like two blocks away and collecting Thelma's car out of the garage, which 
lived there for some reason, and then bringing it back to the cafe where then she could have her car. I don't really understand it, but that's what I found in the story. I I know she wasn't allowed to drive, Thelma, because she was involved in multiple car accidents. So I don't know if her like license was revoked, but oh, there was definite. Um, yeah, uh, at least according to like this, the Vintage Woman magazine okay. uh, that I I looked at. But yeah, she had been in multiple accidents, wasn't allowed to drive. I don't know why. the car would be parked at Roland's house, but I imagine that maybe the chauffeur would drop it off there and then whatever. But It sounds like he had the space to store it in a garage where if she was living in the cafe apartment, Mm -hmm. she may or may not have had a safer space for it. And if we think back to it, this is like the beginnings of when people even had cars. Like you had to kind of have some money to have a vehicle. So he may have even A, purchased it for her, who knows, but B, she probably wasn't using it every day the way Mm -hmm. we think of cars Mm -hmm. today, even in the midst of a freaking pandemic. Cars are being used, you know, almost daily. So yeah, Yeah. that's, that's, that is an interesting piece though, that she kept it over there. Well, and also she was known to be like a huge fan of cars. And like you said, cars were the hot, big new thing. And like the type of car you got, the features that it had. I mean, just like it is today, you know, everybody wants the new biggest and brightest thing, but she had a nice car. And I guess she had throughout her lifetime in her twenties, it had several different kinds of cars and was just known to be like a collector type. Like it was her biggest prized possession. So maybe you're right. Like maybe she was keeping it in his garage because it was such, you know, a prized thing that she owned and she wanted to take care of it. And that was the best place for it to be. And it was two blocks away. It wasn't like it was like miles down the road. You know, she could walk to it if she needed to. The 1920s Cardi B. (laughs) You you know, Cardi B can't drive. She doesn't have a license, but she has five cars. And she was like doing a interview that, you know, the singing with James Corden. And he asked her, why do you have so many cars? And she's like, to take pictures with, of course, you know, so it's like more of a, um, it's a status symbol. It's uh, a prize. Yeah. And I, it, it sounds just like what Thelma was doing, you know, probably the cars. <laughs> and it's yeah. kind of one of those things of, because I can. Totally. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. And, you know, unfortunately for her maid, she, went to the garage to pick up her, you know, Thelma's really nice car as she did every single Monday morning. And when she opened the garage, she found Thelma dead in her car, slumped (gasps) over the steering wheel with a broken nose and she had cracked ribs. And the obituary in the LA times described the scene as graphic, like as graphic as they could. And stated that she had blood all over her face. It was all over her silver evening gown and all over the meat coat that she was wearing when she, when her body was discovered. What and was so, the state of the car? Not just parked. So and it so, was fine. Maybe some It was blood. fine. Yes. Wow. And according to this website that I mentioned earlier, it was a 1932 Lincoln Phaeton. Phantom? Phaeton? I don't know. But uh, it sounds Phantom. very, well, it's spelled with an N at the end. That's why I didn't know. But um, oh, it sounds maybe very. Maybe I'm wrong. What do I know? No, I, it could be a typo. But um, what sounds already suspicious to me is the fact that she was in the driver's seat. Like, we know she couldn't drive. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. already. 
Yeah. And then weirder though, it, she like, keep in mind the party was Saturday night. She got dropped off around three or 4 AM Saturday morning, early Sunday morning. And right. she wasn't found till Monday. So according to that, you would imagine she'd been sitting in that car for a whole day and a half, not alive. And so obviously the police and coroner showed up to the scene and they determined that she died of carbon monoxide poisoning. And LAPD determined that her death was accidental and that she died as a result of warming up her car to either drive it or to use it as a heater to keep herself warm. And because the garage door was closed, she would have inhaled carbon monoxide poisoning, leading to her own death. So this is where all the theories come into play. But one thing to know is that the autopsy did show monoxide poisoning up to 70% of total saturation in her blood. But they also stated that there may have been other contributing causes that had led to her death, but that Mm -hmm. definitely carbon monoxide poisoning was a major factor. And so obviously some of these contributing causes would be her broken nose that she had and the fact that she had cracked ribs. And Mm -hmm. so one thing that people argue against in this, in bringing up these injuries is that she, I guess she could have broken her nose if she was sitting up in the car and had died of monoxide poisoning, and maybe her body fell forward, and she hit the Mm -hmm. steering wheel and broke her nose, which would have caused the bleeding. But how does she get broken, cracked ribs? So that would obviously make you think that somebody had kicked her, punched her, had done something like that, which they also could have broken her nose and staged her body in this car and made it look like she gave herself carbon monoxide poisoning when they turned the car on and left her body there in the garage. Yeah, it sounds like they could have just left her for dead. She could have been alive. And then like, great, now she's incapacitated. She won't get out of the car. I'll leave it on. And that'll be her cause of death. Exactly. And so a couple of things to know. So most people believe that she did not accidentally die of carbon monoxide poisoning. and. A lot of people believe that she was either killed before she was placed into Mm -hmm. this car or she was placed into this car and then set up to be killed through carbon monoxide poisoning. But, you know, one thing that they believe didn't happen was that it was accidental because, as I already mentioned, she was obsessed with cars And because cars were a new, big, snazzy thing, people had died of carbon monoxide poisoning on accident. And it started to become a topic that was readily discussed in the news. It was talked about all the time at like car dealerships. And it was just a thing that people were now aware of. So for her having been so interested in cars and checking out cars and wanting to collect cars, she would have been up to speed on the fact that if she closed the garage door and turned the car on to take a nap and be warm, she would die of carbon monoxide poisoning. There's no reason why this would have happened by accident. She would have known that. She's educated on that stuff. So it was not an accident that she made on her own. If you love cute clothes and shopping as much as Natalie and I do, then you've got to check out Closet Candy Boutique. Closet Candy Boutique is an online clothing retailer that has everything from jeans to swimwear to shoes. 
Check out all the cute styles and support our podcast by shopping the murder diaries.closetcandyboutique.com. And just the whole fact of her not even being dropped off there. She was dropped off at her apartment mm-hmm. blocks or miles away from where she's found. Mm-hmm. And when she's found, she's still wearing the same dress from the party. Mm-hmm. So how did she yep. get from one place to the other without having driven there? Exactly. Right? And so like, that leads us to theory sorry. one. <laughs> is I... that No, 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 it's fine. <laughs> but it's just a perfect transition into it is that one theory is that her chauffeur dropped her off in her apartment and that when she got there, she couldn't get into her apartment for whatever reason. Mm-hmm. Either she lost her keys she was super wasted and couldn't figure out how to open the door. Like for whatever reason, she was unable to get into her apartment. And so she walked to Roland's house and opened the garage door and let herself into her car. And it was really cold at night. Mm -hmm. And so she turned on the car to heat it up so that she could be warm. And she laid down and then accidentally killed herself. Except when Roland testified in court, He even said, like, this isn't making any sense. Like, she has locked herself out of her own house numerous times. And she has never once not come to, like, my house and thrown a brick through the window (laughs) or done something to wake me up. And so he's like, if she would have locked herself out, she wouldn't have just come and awkwardly snuck into the garage. Like, he's he even said, like, this isn't this isn't sound reflective of something she would do. So he was like, that's super weird. And also... Her purse was found in her car with her when her body was found, and it contained her house keys. Oh, yeah. So, so yeah, that idea is even thrown out right away. Yeah. It's, it, it, yes. So, I mean, unless she was, like, so blacked out, she didn't see her own keys and let herself in. But also, like, it's pretty obvious in what I've read that Thelma was a party girl. She partied all the time, was out she in could the hold town her liquor. having fun. Not only could she hold her liquor, but, like, she could hold any, she was smart. She had wits. If she got locked out, she wouldn't be like the damsel in distress, like mm-hmm. doing weird shit. She'd call a friend, she'd call a cab, she'd get a hotel. Like it's strange that she would just randomly end up in this garage and accidentally kill herself. So that was kind of like, no. What I also read was like you mentioned, it was cold that night, but it was very windy as well. Yeah. And when she was discovered in the car she was very put together but if she had to walk from her apartment to Roland's house in uh-huh. very cold windy temperatures and you know weather uh she would have been more disheveled looking so it, it oh, doesn't and she match. also had high heels on yeah so either she would have taken off her heels and her feet would have had like gravel and dirt on them which they didn't or her shoes if she chose to and it was uphill so she would have had to have climbed like hiked up a hill to get to his spot so she would have probably been sweating. Her heels would have been scuffed. If she took them off, her feet would have been scuffed. Her hair would have been blown from the wind. They lived right by the beach in mm-hmm. Pacific Palisades. So she looked perfect. <laughs> yeah, so that it, girl was not hiking up a hill mm-hmm. to climb into that garage. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So that's just one theory. And then another theory is people think, well, maybe she just intentionally commits suicide. And she went inside her lover's garage and turned on the car and killed herself because she wanted to either frame him or she was having some beef with Roland about his wife or their relationship. And 
that's kind of one of the most unbelievable theories about her because she obviously you never really know what anyone's truly going through Mm -hmm. but her closest family and friends were like we would have never in our lives would have ever thought that she would even be capable of ending her own life she also her car in the trunk of her car there was like all kinds of christmas presents for her family and friends that she'd already wrapped up and like purchased so well that proves that she had plans for the future and people that are suicidal don't tend to make plans for the future because they know they won't be here yeah exactly um and she also had just landed a new movie gig and she had apparently told a close friend that she had met a new man and that he lived in san francisco and she was really feeling him and felt good vibes about this dude and was very excited to see where this relationship would go Ooh. Well, so okay, is that a red yeah. flag? Because <laughs> that's got me thinking. Uh huh. Yeah. So that leads us into theory three that maybe Roland killed her mm. <laughs> because okay. he seems reasonable. May it does. have learned about this new relationship, and he was, you know, he was just another movie producer dude. So he was no different than any other of the trash dudes at this time where he was already cheating on his wife, having an affair. She was the cream of the crop during this time period. I think it wouldn't be surprising if he was very possessive of her, wanted her to himself and could have extreme jealousy finding out that she had moved on or met somebody different or better than him. And Mm -hmm. being a man of incredible power and wealth, he could have just said, if he, I can't have you, no one will. And he could have set her up in that car and framed it as an accident or a suicide and either punched her or knocked her lights out and then put her in the car and turned it on so that there would be the monoxide poisoning in her system as a way to frame what had happened. Who knows? And just some evidence to support the murder theory is the fact that she was found with carrots and peas in her stomach. Mm -hmm. At least that's what the coroner found. But that wasn't served at the party. So Mm-mm. when would she have eaten that? Because uh, it was undigested in her stomach during the autopsy. So there's the question of, did she eat it at Roland's house? Something to think about. Well, that brings us to theory four. <laughs> oh. oh, my God. Okay. <laughs> I didn't know about theory four. There's a theory for, and this one is the craziest theory. Okay, I'm here for it. I think it seems like the most realistic, but we'll see. So apparently she had had beef with the mob. And not (laughs) that she had beef with the mob, they had beef with her. And so in 1935, really close to around the time that she passed away, she had received a string of like eight letters that were threatening her life that if she didn't pay $10,000 to this person that she would be killed. And it was signed with an ace of hearts, which I guess was the signature for this mob guy named Lucky Luciano. And he has actually been tied to several other murderous cases in the Hollywood industry during the 20s and the 30s. So he was known to frame celebrities at this time Mm -hmm. period. Um, And then You know, she had told people that this was happening. She's shown the letters. Like, she was concerned about this. And there's also, um, uh, I guess, a theory that he actually wanted to rent out the other half of the roof of where her cafe was. So, like, part of it was apartments. And then the other half was just, like, this open lot. 
and that he wanted to rent it out and make it a casino for the mob. And that she said, like, no, like, I don't want you running your mob casino above my house in my cafe. <laughs> like, but, no, no, but thank you. <laughs> yeah, but it was, like, great real estate. And already, because of her, this property was booming. Her cafe right. was so successful. It had tons of traffic all day long, 24-7, coming through. So to the mob, they were like, we need to get in on this property. It's on the beach in Pacific Palisades, owned by this cr- incredible celebrity that everybody loves. They wanted it. And she said, screw you. So the weird thing is that um, this lucky Luciano guy ended up like getting taken to prison for something totally unrelated. And when that happened, Mm. these uh, letters stopped coming. So he obviously was sending them to her. Mm. But um, right. And then worse, like right after she died, Luciano was now at that point out of jail and he like left LA and never returned and was like never seen or heard from again. I mean, so, I'm not one to suspicious. believe in, um, you know, coincidences and those sound like big coincidences, but I feel like if this were a mob hit, she'd be sleeping with the fishes as they say, you know what I mean? <laughs> it would feel a little more, um, intentional. Mm-hmm. Not that I'm like a mob, um, you know, expert, that's just from my reading my own readings and um knowledge of it true i'm really just basing it off the sopranos and i watched that one other thing is that they say that the peas and the carrots could have been indication that she might have gotten dropped off at her house from the chauffeur a mob Mm -hmm. dude happened to be there knowing that she had had a huge party that was being thrown for her that Mm -hmm. night and that eventually she'd be coming home late that maybe they met her and they were like, Hey, let's go to like Denny's and let's have, you know, a late breakfast and we're going to talk about X, Y, and Z. (laughs) And because she had to be all of 125 pounds, she went for the peas and carrots Mm -hmm. and she had this conversation with the mob or whoever the hell she was with, who then dropped her off at Roland's house and put her body in the garage, which is why she had no ruffles on her feathers, no marks on her feet, mm-hmm. no hair out of place. And so that's what people think happened. And Lucky Luciano was super notorious at this time. You've got to watch Boardwalk Empire if you want to know a little bit more about him. Truthfully, I'm not super into the mob, but I did enjoy that show. And I'm feeling like it's interesting that he was involved in something like in LA because the mob at that point, or at least from what I have learned at that point was like super, like all about like Atlantic city, Las Vegas, Chicago, maybe some New York. I don't know. Not a mob expert. So it's interesting that he's involved in this stuff going on in LA. And it made me think when Natalie was talking about like, Oh, you know, she would be sleeping with the fishes. Why would it be kind of so messy that her body's just sitting in this garage with a lot of questions surrounding it? Makes me wonder, were they just feeling super comfortable? If it was the mob, like, were they just feeling super comfortable about this job? Like, maybe they had the right things in place at the police department at the time, if you know what I'm saying, or whatever mm-hmm. authorities, and just were like, yep, we can kind of do whatever we want. And this little 125-pound blondie, no sweat. Ping, ping, you're in your garage. There we go. Well, you know where my mind keeps going, though, is it feels a little more personal to me. It and does. I know we're not one, we're not really a podcast to go 
too far into our own speculations, but the fact that she had a broken nose and yes. cracked ribs, it is very personal in that someone was close to her physically mm-hmm. in proximity beating her. And I right. feel like the mob would just make it really quick. For, yeah. Mm-hmm. At least a, totally. I feel like a lady would be a gun to the head, you know, drown them, crash them, whatever. And right. to me, the fact that she is beaten up, it feels like there was some anger there. It like, sounds personal. personal anger. And you're messing with the face. And what a fourth yeah. actress is like your asset, your face. So I'm wondering, and these are all for, you know, interesting theories, but like, where's Roland's wife in all this? Like, why are we not talking about the possibility of something that involves that? Like, it almost sounds like she got pushed downstairs, her face, ribs, mm-hmm. like, could she have been pushed down something like stairs or like, you know what I mean? Like it, it yeah. might have started slightly accidental, but she was getting beat and then was unconscious and put into the car. I'm kind of questioning theories that might say she was dead before she was in the car because I question how would one get carbon monoxide poisoning to the exactly. point of 70% saturation. She could have been passed out. Yeah. I'm thinking she was passed out, still alive, mm-hmm. put into the car. And it's almost like someone would have known she was alive when they did that if mm-hmm. she was to get um, carbon monoxide. So how familiar with either A, her body, or B, just the idea of a badly beaten body would someone have to be to know that they could do that, which does interest me in the mob or right. Roland big time. Either one. It could also just be like a cover-up. You know, well, you know, don't they always say that most female murderers like yes. will do it subtly poison. and silently and quietly through poison? Yeah. But you know, I read up on the wife and I cuz I thought the same thing. I'm like she seems to be the most logical person that could potentially have issues with her and want her gone, and from what I read and saw in multiple sources that apparently her name was Jewel Carmen, but apparently she had no qualms with her at all. She was and probably having her own affair. They I, all were I wonder. It's so true. Yeah. It's so true. I think that she actually hated her own husband a lot uh-huh. more than she disliked Thelma. <laughs> so I just, I, I couldn't find anything that would lead to that. But yeah. there still is one other part of this case that's weird. Oh. And that's the fact that, so the coroners had stated that based off what they evaluated in the body, that Thelma was likely to have died around five in the morning that Saturday night, Sunday morning. But a friend of Thelma's, her name was Miss Martha Ford, that she testified in court that she received a phone call from Thelma on Sunday at 4 p.m., which would have been 11 hours after when she apparently was killed and died. And that she called her and said, Hey, do you mind if I come over? I have a really special guest with me that I'd like to bring to your house. And I apologize in advance. I'm actually still wearing my same night clothes from my party last night. So I'm a little disheveled, but I'd like to come by with this really special person to your house right now. Now that's spooky. (laughs) And the lady said, yes, come on by, like whatever, whatever. Yeah. And of course she never showed up, but the woman on testified saying, you know, I've known Thelma for years. I know her mm-hmm. voice. I talked to Thelma on the phone. 
Like it wasn't some fakey. And so if that's the case, um, I, you don't, I don't know. I have no clue who she could have been with at 4 PM on Sunday and still ended up in that garage Monday and was no longer alive. Cause we have no clue what happened Sunday. She, like, right. she was last seen 3 a.m. Saturday and was next found in the morning on Monday. So all of Sunday is a complete mystery. We we believe she was just sitting in that car in the garage, but we don't know. Right. That's so and, frustrating. You know, I bet you this is one of those cases that could totally be solved because I'm sure there are people that know something that haven't said something. Oh, totally. And, uh, it sucks that it's already 90 years later and we haven't had any deathbed confessions because I feel like um there there's at least that one person that saw something and didn't speak up. Yeah. Well, and then sadly, um a grand jury was held to determine whether her death was a possible murder or not and they decided to close the case and they stated that her death was an accidental death with possible suicidal tendencies. And super sad, Thelma had actually been in a movie that had finished all of its scenes prior to her death. It was called The Bohemian Girl. But after she died, the producer reshot all of her (sighs) scenes, deleted all of her dialogue from the movie, and like got rid of every part of her in it other than a scene of her where she did like a musical number. And that was it. That's bizarre. Which is so weird. I, I wonder if, like, at the time they saw it more as a taboo to have someone recently deceased with such um, speculation, sur- you know, um, crazy stories surrounding the death. That could be why, but it sounds, like, very callous. Or you got to yeah. think of, like, where's the money going to go if she passes? What's her estate look like? Like, there's probably so many different reasons that could have been made. I mm-hmm. wonder about that, too. And then, right, I wonder about the money, about the beliefs that the producer may have had. You got to remember, this is all in Hollywood. Mm-hmm. It's a small well, and little town. In the 1930s, know? which is a lifetime ago. People thought way differently back then. Right. So, so I totally... I could see where it would, could have been out of respect, but I also could see where it was like, okay, well, now all of this money from Thelma Todd creepily goes to Roland, and the producer was like, I know Roland, I don't like him, I think he killed her. You know, it's just, I could mm-hmm. see a couple different reasons why they would do that. But that is, that is actually sad too, though, because that movie would probably be somewhat of a cult classic as it was her Totally. Last. Well, it, yeah. it would have been her last... Um, Hurrah, essentially. That's Mm -hmm. right. Yeah. So Thelma has a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. It's at 626 Hollywood Boulevard. So if you're in LA, you can go check it out. And one final shocking, crazy note is that on Roland's deathbed, he apparently admitted that he is at fault for Thelma's death. Um, there's your deathbed confession, Natalie. Yeah, he didn't oh my God. state how he did it, ex- but when authorities came to collect more statements from him, everything that he said totally contradicted the entire timeline of events. That's so, so weird. 
Do we know? We're kind of like, what? Like everything you're saying doesn't add up to anything that our investigation showed. And that he basically wasn't like, I murdered her, but he said that something that he had done had led to her accidental death and that it's all his fault. Maybe he felt responsible, but maybe indirectly, like you're saying. It wasn't something he like intentionally did, but maybe he felt like he didn't protect her or something. I don't know, but that's so interesting. Perhaps he cleaned up things that the investigation was never aware of as well. So Mm -hmm. that, of course, it didn't fit. You know, there's always that option, too, of like, well, none of this fits our investigation. And we know all too well, being a true crime podcast, that sometimes when investigators get something going, they pursue it, which is right. But sometimes when things don't fit that vision, they kind of push it off for a second and then have to get a whole new story going. And then once that piece of evidence fits the vision, then it becomes a bigger piece of evidence that can lead towards better things. So just makes me kind of wonder about all, all of that kind of side of it. Well, and then it, yeah. it calls into question, what if his account of what happened is actually true? Because like you mentioned, Melissa, about the friend who said they heard from Thelma on Sunday. Maybe their mm-hmm. time, the police's timeline is the one that's wrong. Right. That's what I'm mm-hmm. saying. Yeah. Totally. No, I'm saying maybe he cleaned up some of those things that got the timeline off. I fully agree with, with what you're saying right now, too. Mm-hmm. It makes me wonder. Yeah. And like a few different accounts that I read in terms of theories is that people think that, as you had also mentioned, Paige, that the police were somehow either tipped off or paid off to fix some of the evidence or get rid of some of the evidence. So like, say for instance, you know, somebody who was the cause of her death was a very wealthy, rich, powerful person, um, you know, could have had connections or ties to the coroner or the LAPD that arrived to the scene or whatever, and the story, or what was reported in terms of the timeline could have been reported inaccurately on purpose. Um, I mean, we don't know. But I kind of was thinking, like, I don't know, for some reason, I just was thinking that, like, I imagine, (laughs) you know, if Roland was dating her, and she was this beautiful, incredible celebrity. And she was always out on the town getting lots of attention and partying it up and living her best life. And he had said, like, hey, come home by two. I want you home by two. And she kind of blew him off. Like, it wouldn't, I don't think it seems strange for her to show up when she shows up. Lots of alcohol in her system, probably popping off at him because we know she did that. And him giving her a few slaps and saying, like, throwing her in the car and saying like, you're going to sleep out in the garage tonight and turning on the car to give her some heat, not thinking anything about it and leaving. Yeah. Honestly, that sounds the most realistic. (laughs) Right. And and going back to the timeline, we got to remember there's no, you know, CCC cameras. There's no cell phones and text messages to pinpoint timelines or corroborate timelines. So Really, it's probably mostly word of mouth. I last saw Thelma at such and such time. And P.S. clocks were not digital. They were not everywhere. So people and the time frame and timelines would have been 
so much looser back then. It makes me even wonder how investigators even built a timeline other than like food being in her stomach that maybe she ate within 20 minutes or 10 minutes or whatever of her death, you know? And just adding on to what you're saying, we all know witness statements are the worst. Yeah, eyewitness statements aren't accurate at all. Right. They're always um, diluted by people's own ideas of what happened. Totally. And everybody is always fishing for, did I see something? Especially in that Mm -hmm. time period where no one had a cell phone. You just had a clock on the wall that no one was looking at, you know. It, it there wasn't any like major record of time or what was happening or who was where and when it, yep. you know it, we didn't have that back then so when people at the party probably found out she was missing or she had died i'm sure everybody's thinking like how can i like what do i remember yep. what, mm-hmm. what conversation did i have who did i see her with when did i last see her and also the chauffeur himself even gave a one hour timeline of when he could have dropped her off. <laughs> That's what <laughs> I'm saying. Between 4.30 or something. Like he doesn't even know. That's you know? what I'm well, saying. I yeah. almost wish that we could look. I'm not one to look at um, crime scene photos, but I kind of wish there were photos so we could see her hands. Did she have defensive wounds? Because the, yeah. I feel like that would answer a lot. You know what I mean? Did she fight back? Did she fall? and mm-hmm. put herself in the car. There's so much because of when it happened that we'll never know. And that's what's mm-hmm. so unfortunate about this. Yeah, totally. Yeah. So that's what's crazy is that we know Thelma died, but we don't know if she was murdered. We don't know if it was an accidental monoxide poisoning that she brought on herself or if for some reason she felt inclined to end her own life. Or if somebody else accidentally killed her through monoxide poisoning. Like, or if the freaking mob set this whole thing <laughs> up. Like, we have no idea. We just know that she passed away at 29 years old. And the mystery behind how that happened is still completely unsolved all of these years later. What a tragedy. There's so many other theories going in my head, too. Like, what if the mob approached him and said, hey, you're going to let us take her out? And it's going to happen here. You know, all this weird stuff. Oh, there's just way too much to it. I'm not I'm not done with it. I told you I was going to get into a deep, dark hole with it. It's. I'm entering. I'm entering it right now. I'm never going to forget this case. It's going to haunt me. This is right. crazy. I, I'm almost a little sad that her legacy now, it, it's more because of how she died rather than yeah. truth. All of the amazing things about her that we talked about at the beginning. And I think when we end this episode, I really want to focus on that rather than Mm -hmm. the fact that she died in very suspicious ways. You know, Mm -hmm. I want to remember her as someone who was ahead of her time and uh, stood up for herself. And I think Uh that's really admirable and someone that we can all learn from, especially in the time that we live in. Um. I'm not trying to get up on my soapbox, but I I just... No, totally. I want to just highlight again what a really shining star she was. I mean, even just her um, interest and passion to portray beautiful women in Hollywood movies in the 1920s and 30s as a woman that's intelligent and independent Mm -hmm. and smart 
and sort of push against that stereotype that you saw many times at the start of Hollywood, where the woman was just this attractive, voluptuous bimbo lady who had no depth and couldn't think for herself. She never, she made a point to never play that role. And I think that's really important that she wanted to set that precedence for mm-hmm. other women who are watching Hollywood films to look at her and know that they can be just like her, independent, smart, strong, and that women aren't dumbed down to the stereotypes that Hollywood was trying to put them in. And so I love that about her as well. I have a great quote from her that I would like to read. This is something I tend to do a lot because quotes kind of settle me because it really teaches you a lot about that person and who they are, you know, um, and their in their thoughts and their beliefs and their spirit. And I just love it. It's just, it's a, it's a, it's a, a, a pinprick of, of a piece of who they are. I have made my way alone and I can stand up for myself. I think I'm the sort of person who can take a great deal from one I care for and forget it, but there's a limit beyond that. And it's all over. Thelma Todd in 1931. Yeah, that's a it's a good quote. And it's it's such a relatable quote to what happened and some of the theories behind what happened. So that's a good one to I end on. I wish I were drinking because I'd, I'd <laughs> pour one out for her. Right. Well, <laughs> oh, thanks. Pour for this into my mouth. Pour it into your mouth. <laughs> <laughs> the date she passed is December 16th, 1935. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think like one other thing to know is that like we even just today in 2020, I we know, especially with social media and the news that women still go through a lot of hardship in this Mm -hmm. entertainment industry in terms of being respected or valued or paid correctly or even coming across supervisors or men or producers or even their their colleagues, the person that's working alongside of them, you know, not being able to get respect or be treated appropriately or just straight up harassed. I mean, we know that this stuff is happening all the time, not just to the up and coming actress, to multi-million dollar celebrities. And so I think even like one thing to know, you know, during this time period is that we know that there were a lot of challenges for um, like women of color who were kickstarting in Hollywood during the twenties and thirties. Like for instance, Anna Mae Wong, she was like the very first Asian American actress that ever graced the spotlight that wasn't white. And she went through a lot of hardship in that experience of just creating a path and paving the way for someone that wasn't white. And I think her story often like shows us that Hollywood was dark for her during this time period. But I think this story is really important to recognize that like Hollywood was dark for all women. And it, you know, it, it, they had different challenges, whether anime Wong experienced extreme racism because of who she was, or, you know, Thelma experienced sexism or she experienced harassment, sexual harassment, or she experienced like, you know, being treated like garbage because of her body. And she could have even have died because she was such a vocal, outspoken, strong woman. And so in general, whether we're talking about the 20s or 30s, whatever race you might be, to today in 2020, whether you're up and coming or a multimillionaire, huge star celebrity, women have been experiencing some pretty severe 
dark experiences in Hollywood and the entertainment industry. And it's despicable because in addition to that, it's like the most popular and like entertainment is what we all do. We watch Netflix 24 hours a day. We're going to movies, you know, actresses and actors are making tons of money. These producers and creators and directors are, you know, owning every property. They're living in mansions and sky rises. And it's like, or what? Like, this is the most corrupt industry on earth, and yet it's the most celebrated and prized industry in our society, and that's fucked. <laughs> so I'm just disgusted by it, and I, I think that these stories, whether they're Anime Wong stories or Thelma Todd stories, it's important for us as consumers to really think about like how the people that are in, in these careers and into these industries really go through some severe hardship for people like us to binge watch TV with popcorn on our couches. And it's gnarly. Wow, that's such a great point. <laughs> and I think if we want a modern take on on some of it specifically, a Rose McGowan's documentary, Citizen Rose, yeah. it should still be on Netflix. Um, holy shit. Like it's the whole Harvey Weinstein mm-hmm. drama and right. It just shows you how prevalent, if not even worse, it it has become today because it's just generational at this point within the industry from mentor to mentee and just this gross yep. abuse of power. Yeah. And I don't want to like toot our own horns, but I think just the fact that we're three ladies that are producing and hosting our own shows and supporting each other's is kind of a step in in a positive light to um, the entertainment industry. So, you know what? I'm so happy we were able to do this collaboration because we're taking one step away from, you know, how things were. We're going in the right direction and I'm excited for us. And um, I hope that, this encourages other girls our age or younger to do the same thing, not wait on anyone to give them permission to start their own projects. Mm-hmm. Right. And it's not your job to make creepy men feel comfortable. Just remember that. But you know what? I feel like, too, what's one other point is that I I feel like with the advancement of technology and just social media and how toxic it can be and how sometimes we see the dark side of that, of whether it's social media or just the internet or the news, like one positive element that we can pull from it is that people really can't hide their shitty behavior anymore. And it's Amen. just, it's one of those things where I, you know, I just went on this rant about how horrendous the entertainment industry, which I believe it is, but, uh, you know, with progression of life and technology and the availability of things to be right there at, in front of multi- millions of people's eyes is making the opportunity to be a garbage human being lesser and lesser and lesser. Yeah. And people Everyone's are finally mad. being held accountable yeah. and they're pissed about it, you know, it, People are not happy that they're finally having to fess up to the horrible things they've done to people for generations. But if there is something good about this advancement in social media or technology, it's that people can have these jobs and careers and be in this industry and know that if they are objectified or they are mistreated, the likelihood of them seeking and getting justice is a lot higher than it used to be. 
So I don't know if there's like a silver lining in that or not. Um, but hopefully that will prevent people from being crappy human beings or at least prevent them from being in the spotlight because if they're going to be crappy human beings, they don't want to get caught. So they might just have to be on their merry way. You know, I don't know. Yeah. It's not, it's no longer welcome. It's no longer boys will be boys. It's you're done. We're not tolerating it anymore. We're done being passive. Yeah. For real. And they can't hide because it will fucking come out. We will find you. (laughs) We will find you. (laughs) We're all good. We're, we all, all women should basically be part of the FBI because I feel like we could find shit on anyone. (laughs) Well, I hope that Thelma would be happy, honored, moved that a conversation about her story could turn into us talking about how we're using our platform to continue to empower women and give voices back to the stories that Mm -hmm. are lost in history or that the stories of the victims of murder stay alive. And in this particular episode, we smush that all together. And this is such a great place, I think, to leave it. And it's such a positive note. Yep. Absolutely agree. I kind of feel like, it's really hard to sometimes end episodes, but yeah, like Paige said, that was a really good place to end. Thank you so much, Melissa, for joining us on Murder Diaries. Um, what a special treat for us and our listeners. Thank you for being here with us, Melissa. Something we always say at the bottom of our eps is, until then, better safe than dead. Oh my God, you guys, did you love it? Did you hate it? Were you on pins and needles, deep diving into the deep, dark, black web to figure out who killed Thelma? How friggin' fun was this Mimosa Sisterhood true crime episode? So if you enjoyed this episode, hop on over to Apple Podcasts and give a big five-star rating and review to the Mimosa Sisterhood and the Murder Diaries for the super fun investigative collaboration that we did together. Also, shoot me an email or a DM if you have theories about Thelma Todd. And be sure to tune into the Murder Diaries podcast every Thursday for true crime stories featuring female victims. And also check out their Instagram page and follow them immediately. And thank you so much for tuning in. Don't forget to spread the Mimosa Sisterhood word to all your friends and all your social media followers. You guys are literally the gatekeepers to the success of this podcast. So help a homie out, spread the word, and stay tuned for next week. We have another Everyday Woman episode featuring a super freaking kick-ass chick from San Francisco. She's an entrepreneur. She has an incredible business that I am now a huge fan of, and I imagine you will be too. So stay tuned for that. And until next time, tell all your female friends that you love them and they kick ass because they probably do. Bye.